Chapter Five of the Maid of Maiden Lane by Amelia Edith Huddleston Barr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Turning over a new leaf. When Hyde awakened, he was in that borderland between dreams and day, which we call dawn. And as the ear is the last sense to go to sleep, and the first sense to throw off its lethargy, the voices of men calling, Milk ho! and the shrill, childish cries of, Sweep ho! were the first intruders into that pleasant condition between sleeping and waking, so hard for any of us to leave without a sigh of regret. These sounds were quickly supplemented by the roll of the heavy carts which pervade the only water suitable for drinking and culinary purposes, and by the sounds of wood-sawing and wood-chopping before the doors of the adjacent houses, sounds quickly blending themselves with the shuffling feet of the slaves cleaning the doorsteps and sidewalks, and chattering, singing, quarrelling the while with their neighbours, or with other early ministers to the city's domestic wants. These noises had never before made any impression on him. <laughs> I am more alive than ever I was in my life, he said, and he laughed gaily, and went to the window. It is a lovely day, and that is so much in my favor, for if it were raining, Cornelia would not leave the house. Then a big man with a voice like a bull of Bashan went down the opposite side of the street, shouting as he went, Milk ho! and Hyde considered him. He had a heavy wooden yoke across his shoulders, and large tin pails full of milk hanging from it. "'How English we are!' he exclaimed, with a touch of irony. "'We have not thrown off the yoke by any means. At Mr. Adams's, for instance, I could believe myself in England. How exclusive is the pompous little minister! What respect for office! What adoration for landed gentry what supercilious tolerance for tradesmen oh indeed it confounds me but why should i trouble myself i who have the most adorable mistress in the world to think about what are the kings presidents ministers knaves of the world to me let destiny shuffle them back and forth i am indifferent to whichever is trump's then he fell into a reverie about his proposed visit to mrs adams last night it had appeared to him an easy and natural thing to do he was not so sure of his position this morning mr adams might be present he was punctilious in the extreme and a call without an invitation at that early hour might be considered an impertinence especially if he had no opportunity to enlighten Mrs. Adams about his love for Miss Moran, and so ask her assistance. Then he began to doubt whether his mother was on sufficient terms of intimacy to warrant his speaking about the swans and laburnum seeds. In short, the visit that had seemed so natural and proper when he first conceived it assumed, on reflection, an aspect of difficulty and almost of impropriety. But there are times when laissez-aller carries all before it, and Hyde was in just such a mood. "'I'll run the chance,' he said. "'I'll risk it. I'll let things take their course.' Then he began to dress. 
and as doubt of any kind is best ended by action, he gathered confidence as he did so. Fortunately, there was no hesitation this morning in his mind about his dress. He was going to ride to Richmond Hill, and he was quite satisfied with his riding suit. He knew that it was the next thing to a becoming uniform. He knew that he looked well in it, and he remembered with complacence that it was old enough to be individual, and new enough to be handsome and striking. And, after all, when a man is in love, to be reasonable is often to be cowardly. But Hyde was no coward. So then it was not long ere he put all fears and doubts behind him, and set his musings to the assertion. I said to my heart last night that I would meet Cornelia at Richmond Hill this morning. I will not go back on my word. Such fluctuability is only fit for failure. When he was dressed he went to his hotel and breakfasted there, for the cup of coffee he had intended to ask of Mrs. Adams appeared now a little presumptuous. In the enthusiasm of the previous night, with Cornelia's smiles warming his imagination and her words thrilling his heart, everything had seemed possible and natural. But last night and this morning were different epochs. Last night he had been better, stronger than himself. This morning he felt all the limitations of social conveniences and tyrannies. Early as it was, there were many members and senators present, eating, drinking coffee, and talking of Franklin, or of the question of the Senate sitting with closed doors, or of some other of the great little subjects then agitating society. Hyde took no notice of any of these disputes until a man, evidently an Englishman, called Franklin, A beggar on horseback Yankee. Then he put down his knife and fork and looked steadily at the speaker, saying with the utmost coolness and firmness, you are mistaken sir the beggar on horseback is generally supposed to ride to the devil franklin rose to the highest post of political honor and to the esteem and affection of worthy men in all the civilized world i understand i understand sir the infatuation of a nation for some particular genius or leader is very like that of a man for an ugly woman when they do get their eyes opened, they wonder what bewitched them. Sir, what is unreasonable is irrefutable. With these words he rose, pushed aside his chair with a little temper, and, turning, met Jefferson face to face. The great man smiled and put his hand affectionately on Hyde's shoulder. He had evidently heard the conversation, for when he had made the usual greetings, he added, You spoke well, my young friend. Now I will give you a piece of advice. When anyone abuses a great man in your presence, ask them what kind of people they admire. You will certainly be consoled. With these words he took Hyde's chair, and Hyde, casting his eyes a moment on this tall, loose-limbed man, whose cold blue eyes and red hair emphasized the stern anger of his whole appearance, was well disposed to leave the scurrilous Englishman to his power of reproof. Besides, the badge of mourning which Jefferson wore had reminded him of his own neglect. Probably it was the want of this badge that made the stranger believe he was speaking to one who would sympathize with his views. So he went at once to his tailors and procured the necessary band of crape for his arm. But these events took time, and though he rode hard afterwards, it was quite half-past nine when he drew rein at the door of Richmond Hill. A slave in fine livery was lounging there, and he gave him his card. 
in a few moments the man returned with an invitation to dismount and come into the breakfast-room thus far he had suffered himself to be carried forward by the impulse of his heart and he still put firmly down any wonder as to what he should say or do he was shown into a bright little parlour with open windows a table elegantly and plentifully spread occupied the centre of the room and sitting at it were the vice-president and mrs adams and also their only daughter the beautiful but not very intellectual mrs smith it was easy to see that the meal was really over and that the trio had been simply lingering over the table because of some interesting discussion and it was quite as easy to understand that his entrance had put an end to the conversation mrs adams met him with genuine though formal kindness mrs smith with courtesy and the vice-president rose bowed handsomely hoped he was well and then after a minute's reflection said we were talking about the official title proper for general washington what do you think lieutenant or have you heard general hyde express any opinion on the subject sir i do not presume to understand the ceremonials of government my father is of the opinion that the president of the united states has a roman and republican simplicity and that any addition to it would be derogatory and childish my dear young man the eyes of the world are upon us to give a title to our leaders and rulers belongs to history in the roman republic great conquerors assumed even distinctive titles as well as national ones then our washington is superior to them let us be grateful that he has not yet called himself uh, americanus i like dr coon's idea of washington best but i see not how it could be put into a civil title dr coon's dr coon's oh yes of the dutch congregation pray what is it and there came up a lion out of judah my grandfather is an elder in that church and he said the verse and the sermon on it lifted the people to their feet that might do very well for one side of the state seal but it is a proper prefix we need i don't think we can say your majesty the president i should think not replied mrs adams with an air of decision chief justice mckean thinks his serene highness the president of the united states is very suitable roger sherman is of the opinion that neither his highness nor his excellency are novel and dignified enough and general muhlenberg says washington himself is in favour of high mightiness the title used by the stadtholder of holland so please judge americans if a title at all is necessary which i confess i cannot understand it is to be high mightiness then she asked with a little laugh i think not muhlenberg however has seriously offended the president by making a joke of the proposition and i must say it was ill-timed of muhlenberg and not what i should have expected of him but what was the joke something to the effect that if the office was certain to be held by men as large as washington the title of high mightiness would not be amiss but that if a little man say like aaron burr should be elected the title would be a ridiculous one the fact is Mullenberg is against any title whatever but that of President of the United States. And how will you vote, John? In favor of a title. Certainly, I shall. Your Majesty is a very good prefix. 
it would draw the attention of England and show her that we were not afraid to assume the majesty of our conquest. And if you wish to please France, continued Mrs. Adams, which seems a thing in fashion, you might have the prefix citizen. Citizen Washington is not bad. It is execrable, Mrs. Adams, and I am ashamed that you should make it, even as a pleasantry. Indeed, my friend, there's no foretelling what may be. The French fever is rising every day. I even may be compelled to drop the offensive mistress and call myself Citoyen Adams. And, after all, I should believe that the President regards his citizenship far above his office. What say you, Lieutenant? I think, madame, that fifty, one hundred, one thousand years after this day, it will be of little importance what prefix is put before the name of the President. He will be simply George Washington, in every heart and on every page. That is true. Fame uses no prefixes. This Pompey, Jules Caesar, Heracles, Alfred, Hampton, Oliver Cromwell. What is the suffix like Alexander the Great, or Richard Cord the Lion? I have no objection for Washington the Great, or Washington Cord the Lion. Washington will do for love and for fame. The next generation may say Mr. Madison, or Mr. Monroe, or Mr. Jay, but they will want neither prefix nor suffix to Washington, Jefferson, Franklin. And if you permit me, sir, Adams. The vice president was much pleased. He said, Pooh, pooh, and stood up and stepped loftily across the hearthrug. But the subtle compliment went warm to his heart, and the real worth of the man's nature came straight to the front, as he looked, under its influence, the honest, positive, honorable gentleman that every great occasion found him to be. "'Well, well,' he answered, "'heartily, and from our souls we must do our best, and then trust to truth and time our name and our memory. But I must now go to town. Our affairs give us no holidays.' And then, instantly, the room was in a fuss and a flurry. No Englishman could have made a more bustling exit. And, indeed, even in his physical aspect, John Adams was a perfect picture of the traditional John Bull. His natural temperament carried out this likeness. High meddled as a gamecock during the Revolutionary War, he was, in politics passionate, dogmatic, and unconciliating, and in social life ceremonious and showy as any Englishman could be. After he had gone, Mrs. Adams proposed a walk in the lovely garden, and Hyde hoped then to obtain a few words with her. But Mrs. Smith accompanied them, and introduced immediately a grievance she had evidently been previously discussing. With a provoking petulance she told and retold some slight which Sir John Temple had offered Mr. Smith, adding always, "'Lady Temple is very civil to me, but I cannot, and I will not.' exchange visits with any lady who does not pay my William an equal civility. Enlarging and enlarging on this text, Hyde found no opportunity to get a word in on his own affairs, and then suddenly, as they turned into the main avenue, Dr. Moran and Cornelia appeared. Quite as suddenly Mrs. Adams divined the motive of Hyde's early visit. She opened her eyes wide, and looked at him with a comprehension so clear and real that Hyde was compelled to answer— and acknowledge her suspicion by a look and movement quite as unequivocal. 
yet this instantaneous understanding contained neither promise nor sympathy and he could not tell whether he had gained a friend or simply made a confession dr moran was evidently both astonished and annoyed he stepped out of his carriage and joined mrs adams but kept cornelia by his side so that hyde was compelled to escort mrs smith and cornelia beyond a very civil good morning sir gave him no sign he could watch her slight virginal figure and the bend of her head in answering mrs adams gave him transient glimpses of her fair face but there was no message in all its changes for him in fact in spite of mrs smith's little rill of social complaining he felt quite out of the inner circle of the company's interests and he was also deeply mortified at cornelia's apparent indifference when the party reached the steps before the house door though mrs adams certainly invited him to remain he had come to the conclusion that he was just the one person not wanted at that time yet as he had plenty of self-command he completely hid beneath a gay and charming manner the chagrin and disappointment that were really tormenting him for one moment he caught cornelia's eyes but his glance was too rapid and inquisitive she was embarrassed and a little frightened by it and with a deep blush turned towards mrs smith and said something trivial about the weather and the fine view he could not understand this attitude feelings of tenderness anger mortification feeling strong and threefold crowded his beating heart and vivid brain he longed to set his restless thoughts to rapid movement to gallop to ejaculate to do any foolish thing that would relieve his sense of vexation and defeat but until he was out of sight and hearing he rode slowly with the easy air of a man who was only sensitive to the beauty of his surroundings and thoroughly enjoying them he kept this pace till quite outside the precincts of richmond hill then he struck his horse with a passion that astonished the animal and the next moment shamed himself he stooped instantly and apologized to the quivering creature and was as instantly forgiven then he began to talk to himself in those elliptical unfinished sentences which the inner man understands and so thoroughly finishes if i were not morally sure it is plain as can be how in the name of wonder i'll say so much for myself i am sorry that i went there a couple of uninteresting women this is for you sir whistled myself up this morning on a fool's errand oh, no more no more to save my life grant me patience mrs smith giving herself a parcel of airs oh, adorable cornelia such reflections blended with pet names and apologies to his horse brought him in sight of the van heemskirk house and he instantly felt how good his grandmother's sympathy would be he saw her at the door leaning over the upper half and watching his approach i knew it was thee always the clatter of thy horse's hoofs says plainly to me grandmother 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 now then what is the matter with thee disappointed at thou last night no but this morning i have been badly used and i am angry at it then he told her all the circumstances of his visit to richmond hill and she listened patiently as was her way with all complainers in too great haste art thou no worse i think of cornelia because a little she draws back to want and to have thy want that has been the way with thee all thy life long even thy sword and the battlefield were not denied thee 
but a woman's love that is to be won little wouldst thou value it lightly wouldst thou hold it if it were thine for the wishing thy mother has taught thee to expect too much and my grandmother that is so a very foolish old woman is thy grandmother too much she loves thee or she had not sent thee to arenta's last night with her best ivory winders oh, arenta is a very darling had she been present this morning she had taken the starch out of all our fine talk and fine manners we should have chattered like the swallows about pleasant homely things and left title-making to graver fools if now thou had fallen in love with arenta it had been a good thing if i had not seen cornelia i might have adored arenta but then arenta has already a lover so and pray who is it of all the men in the world the gay handsome frenchman athanes taunier a member of the french embassy how a girl so plainly dutch can endure the creature confounds me stop a little the grandmother of arenta was french very well i remember her a girl all alive from head to foot never still thy grandfather used to say in her veins is quicksilver not blood and too soon she wore away her life arenta's mother was but a baby when she died ah so it is we are the past as well as the present as for myself thou art thy father over again only sweeter and better that is the dutch in thee the happy easy-going dutch if only thy wert not so lazy that is the english in me the self-indulgent masterful english so then arenta being partly french back to the french she goes tis passing strange of this art thou sure i have listened to the man every one has he wears arenta's name on his sleeve he drinks to her health in all companies he will talk to any stranger he meets for an hour at a time about his fair arenta i can but wonder at the fellow it is inconceivable to me for though i am passionately taken with cornelia moran i hide her close to my heart i should want to strike any man who breathed her name yet it is said of athans de tournier that he paid a visit to every one he knew in order to tell them of his felicity and her father to such a marriage what will he say hyde stretched out his legs and struck them lightly with his riding-whip then with a smile he answered he will be proud enough in his heart arenta would certainly leave him soon and the dutch are very sensible to the charm of a title his daughter the marquise de tonnier will be a very great woman in his eyes that is the truth i was glad for thy mother to be a lady and go to court and see the queen yes indeed in my heart i was proud of it twas about that very thing poor janet semple and i became unfriends indeed it is a common failing and at present there is no one like the french 
i will expect the president and mr adams and mr hamilton and say the rest of us are french mad thy grandfather and thy grandmother too thou may expect and as for thy father with a great hatred he names them my father is english and the english and french are natural and salutary enemies i once heard lord exmouth say that france was to england all that carthage was to rome the natural outlet for a temper of a people so quarrelsome that they would fight each other if they had not the french to fight listen that is thy father's gallop far off i know it so early in the morning what is he coming for he had an intention to go to mr simple's funeral that is good thy grandfather is already gone and she looked so pointedly down at her black petticoat and bodice that hyde answered yes i see that you are in mourning is it for mr franklin or for mr simple franklin was far off by my fireside alexander semple often sat and at my table often he ate good friends were we once good friends are we now for all but love death buries at this moment general hyde entered the room hurry and excitement were in his face though they were well controlled he gave his hand to madame van heemskerk saying good morning mother you look well as you always do then turning to his son and regarding the young man's easy smiling indifference he said with some temper what the devil george are you doing here so early in the day i have been through the town seeking you everywhere even at that abominable club where frenchmen and vagabonds of all kinds congregate i was at the vice-president's sir answered george with a comical assumption of the vice-president's manner you were where at richmond hill i made an early call on mrs adams then general hyde laughed heartily ha 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 you swaggering dandy did you take a bet at the belvedere to intrude on his loftiness and have you a guinea or two on supping a cup of coffee with him upon my honour you must now be nearly at the end of your follies mother where is the colonel he has gone to elder semple's house you know i know well for a long time i have purposed to call on the old gentleman and what i have neglected i am now justly denied i meant at least to pay him the last respect but even that is to-day impossible for i must leave for england this afternoon at five o'clock and i have more to do than i can well accomplish george leaped to his feet at these words nothing could have been more unexpected but that is the way with destiny her movements are as ever unforeseen and inevitable sir what has happened your uncle is dying perhaps dead i received a letter this morning urging me to take the first packet the north star sails this afternoon and i do not wish to miss her for she flies english colours and they are the only ones the barbary pirates pretend to respect now george you must come with me to mr hamilton's office 
we have much business to arrange there. Then, while I pay a farewell visit to the President, you can purchase for me the things I shall require for the voyage. So far his manner had been peremptory and decided, but suddenly a sweet and marvellous change occurred. He went close to Madame Van Heemskerk, and, taking both her hands, said in a voice full of those tones that captivate women's hearts, Mother, mother, I bid you a loving, grateful farewell. You have ever been to me good and gentle and wise, the very best of mothers. God bless you. Then he kissed her with a solemn tenderness, and Lisbeth understood that he believed their parting to be a final one. She sat down weeping, and Hyde, with an authoritative motion of the head commanding his son's attention, went hastily out. It was then eleven o'clock, and there was business that kept both men hurrying here and there until almost the last hour. It had been agreed that they were to meet at the city hotel at four o'clock, and soon after that hour General Hyde joined his son. He looked weary and sad, and began immediately to charge George concerning his mother. We parted with kisses and smiles this morning, and I am glad of it. If I went back, we should both weep, and a wet parting is not a lucky one. I leave her in your charge, George, and when I send her word to come to England, look well to her comfort, and be sure to come with her. Do you hear me? Yes, sir. On no account, even if she wishes it, permit her to come alone. Promise me. I promise you, sir. What is there that I would not do for my mother? What is there that I would not do to please you, sir? Let me tell you, George, such words are very sweet to me. As to yourself, I do not fear for you. It is above and below reason that you should do anything to shame your kindred, living or dead. The living, indeed, you might reconcile. The dead are implacable, and their vengeance is to be feared. I fear not the dead, and I love the living. The honor of Hyde is safe in my keeping. If you have any advice to give me, sir, pray, speak plainly. With all my soul I ask you, then, to play with some moderation. I ask you to avoid any entanglement with women. I ask you to withdraw yourself, as soon as possible, from those blusterers for French liberty, or rather, French license, robbery, and assassination. I tell you there is going to be a fierce national fracas on the subject. Stand by the President, and every word he says, every word is sure to be wise and right. Father, I learnt the word liberty from your lips. I drew my sword under your command for liberty. I know not how to discard an idea that has grown into my nature as the veining grows into the wood. Liberty, yes, cherish it with your lifeblood. But France has polluted the name and outraged the idea. Neither you nor I can wish to be swept into the common sewers, being by birth nobles and aristocrats. 
Earl Stanhope, who was heart and soul with the French Revolution while it was a movement for liberty, has just scratched his name with his own hand from the Revolutionary Club. And Burke, who was once its most enthusiastic defender, has now written a pamphlet which has given it in England a fatal blow. This news came in my letters to-day. Then taking out his watch, he rose, saying, Come, it is time to go to the ship. My dear George. George could not speak. He clasped his father's hand, and then walked by his side to Coffee House Slip, where the North Star was lying. There was no time to spare, and the general was glad of it, for, oh, these last moments! Youth may prolong them, but age has lost youth's rebound, and willingly escapes their disintegrating emotion. Before either realized the fact, the general had crossed the narrow plank. It was quickly withdrawn. The anchor was lifted to the shanty of homeward-bound boys, and the North Star, with wind and tide in her favor, was facing the great separating ocean. George turned from the ship in a maze. He felt as if his life had been cut sharply asunder. At any rate, its continuity was broken, and what other changes this change might bring it was impossible to foresee. In any extremity, however, there is generally some duty to do, and the doing of that duty is the first right step onward. Without reasoning on the matter, George followed this plan. He had a letter to deliver to his mother. It was right that it should be delivered as soon as possible, and indeed he felt as if her voice and presence would be the best of all comfort at that hour. So late as it was, he rode out to Hyde Manor. His mother, with a lighted candle in her hand, opened the door for him. "'I thought it was thy father, Joris, but what? Is there anything wrong? Why art thou alone?' "'There is nothing wrong, dear mother. Come.' i will tell you what has happened then she locked the door carefully and followed her son into the small parlour where she had been sitting he gave her his father's letter and assumed for her sake the air of one who has brought good tidings she silently read and folded it and george said it is the most fortunate thing the north star being ready for sea father could hardly have had a better boat and they started with wind and tide in their favor. We shall hear in a few weeks from him. Are you not pleased, mother? It is too late, Joris, twenty years too late. And I wish not to go to England. Very unhappy was I in that cold gray country. Very happy am I here. But you must have expected this change not until your cousin died was there any thought of such a thing and long before that we had built and begun to love dearly this home i wish then it had been god's will that your cousin had not died my father ah joris your father has always longed in his heart for england like a weaning babe that never could be weaned was he in many ways he has lately shown me that he felt himself to be a future English earl. And thou, too, wilt thou become an Englishman? Then this fair home I have made for thee will forget thy voice and thy footstep. Woe is me! I have planted and planned, 
for whom i know not you have planned and planted for your joris i swear to you that i like england as little as you do i despise the tomfoolery of courts and ceremonies i count an earl no better than any other honourable gentleman i desire most of all to marry the woman i love and live here in the home that reminds me of you wherever i turn i want your likeness on the great stairway and in all the rooms so that those who may never see your face may love you and say how good she looks how beautiful she is so true art thou so loving so dear to me even in england i can be happy if i think of thee here filling these big rooms with good company riding shooting over thine own land fishing in thine own waters telling thy boys and girls how dear grandmother had this pond dug this hedge planted these woods filled with game these streams set with willows these summer-houses built for pleasure oh i have thought ever as i worked i shall leave my memory here and here and here again for never joris never dear joris while thou art in this world must thou forget me never never oh never dear dear mother and that night they said no more both felt there would be plenty of time in the future to consider whatever changes it might have in store for them. End of chapter 5